Well, today we're continuing in this series called Big Faith, and one of the things that has struck me in preparing for this week is that uh, big faith is oftentimes found in small things. Big faith is often expressed in the day-to-day, daily, kind of simple expressions of life that Christ followers live out of that oftentimes uh, go largely unnoticed, that people don't necessarily see it so evidently. But big faith is so often in those small postures and patterns and attitudes and expressions of a person's life. And they shape us. And they also affect people around us. And they slowly start to help people see and experience something different in us. And maybe people even would start to say that they see some transformation in us. Or they might not use that word, but they they notice things have changed. But it's a picture of transformation. And this is uh, some of what James is speaking to. I don't think big faith is uh, oftentimes the the grandiose kind of huge expressions of risk. I mean, it can be that, but more often than not, I think big faith is just those small daily expressions of a changed life of trusting in Jesus. And that's really what James is getting at in this letter that we've been looking at, that uh, these daily expressions, these smaller things, uh, give evidence to the reality of our faith. They show us and remind us, uh, and they show other people that there is evidence of our faith and what it is that we believe, who we put our trust in, and it's seen in the daily patterns of our lives. And often it'll just be self-evident. It'll be natural expressions that come out in our lives where there's more faith, there's more evidence. And it's often not very complicated at all, and sometimes we, we make faith complicated, but it comes out in very tangible expressions And people start to feel the difference. And I say that word intentionally because people, not only do they see it, but they actually start to feel the difference in their interactions with you, and they start to notice that something has changed. And slowly, you're more patient with your kids. You're more gentle with your coworkers. You're more generous with your time, more encouraging in your words, more honoring of the poor, more respectful of your elders, more pure in your thought life, more discerning in your entertainment choices, more giving of your money, more disciplined in your prayer, and on and on and on. Just these small but tangible expressions of the evidence of faith. You might call these works, as James does, and he reminds us very clearly that these works do not save you. They are not what make you right with God, but they are the evidence of the fact that you have been saved. They're the evidence of the fact that Jesus is transforming you, that you have received this gift of salvation, that you understand at least in part what it means to follow Jesus and put your life in Jesus, and then the evidence of that starts to be lived out in the things that James is talking about. They in themselves don't save you, but they point to the fact of your salvation. And so the bigger that you see and understand and embrace this story of God, the bigger the faith that we can live out of and that we can express in our lives. And so this is what James is pointing us to, these practical teachings of life, of a life of faith, day in and day out as followers of Jesus. You know, it's been said that uh, one of the greatest evidences of who Jesus is and the fact that He is the Messiah, that He is the risen one, that He is who He claimed to be, is actually the letter of James. Not, not so much the content of the letter, but the fact that James himself was the brother of Jesus, 
grew up in the same household as Jesus, saw him from a little boy and watched him grow and struggled in faith and doubts and all kinds of things when Jesus entered his public ministry. But then he comes to the place where others came to of saying, he is Lord and Savior. And if a brother can say that of a brother, there's something real going on there. And so you see that in the beginning uh, verses, right in the, the way that he begins the letter. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I look at that and I go, that's evidence enough for me. If a brother says that, he was absolutely convinced of who Jesus was. And so the focus of today's text that James talks about, the simple practical outpouring or expressions of faith that he's focusing on today is to live without prejudice and to live without discrimination, at least in the ways that he describes it here, or favoritism. And so you wonder, maybe I wonder, what what did James witness in his brother growing up around these areas about favoritism and discrimination? We don't know. We don't see that recorded anywhere, but maybe some of the things that we see taught here reflect some of that, of what he witnessed in his brother. So here are some words that matter that I want to begin with and just give some definition to these words because depending on your translation, they come up in different ways, but they're, they're words that are part of this text and of the teaching here that we can see very evidently. And I, so I want, to, I want to begin with some definitions so that we can just be reminded of these things. And if you, if you look at the online study guide, if you have the bulletin app, you can get these definitions uh, on the study questions for this week. But here's one, favoritism. Favoritism is the practice of giving special treatment or unfair advantages to a person or group. So this is some of what James is speaking against. Or prejudice. Prejudice is a a preformed opinion, usually an unfavorable one, based on insufficient knowledge, irrational feelings, or inaccurate stereotypes. Pay attention to that one. Or discrimination. Unfair treatment of one person or group usually because of prejudice about race, ethnicity, age, religion, or gender. And then the last one, judgment. The ability to form sound opinions and make sensible decisions or reliable guesses. And judgment is something that we're called to. We all are wired that way. We judge people all the time, and we're called to make judgments and so on. You're judging. You're judging right now. When you came in, you made judgments about people around you, people that you saw, you're making judgments as you look at me, you're, we, we have judgments all the time, right? And so these are important words for us to think about in what James is teaching here. So let's look at James chapter 2, uh, and I want to just start in verse 1 to 4. We'll take it section by section. So here's what he begins with. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, well, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, well, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Judges with evil thoughts. So this is some of the sin that James is pointing to. You know, we don't know what kind of meeting it is. It doesn't articulate that clearly. What kind of meeting it is that is being referred to of where people would come in and then there's this kind of seating arrangement. Now, uh, meetings and banquets often have seating arrangements. 
Okay, you came in today, you sat maybe in a usual spot or somewhere different, or maybe you're new today and welcome here, that's great, but you found a place to sit. And, and so when, when seating arrangements are there, those things I have found to be quite important. I've been involved in enough weddings over the years to know that seating arrangements are really important for the reception. Parents and, you know, uh, young couples, they grieve over this and churn over this for a long, long time. Some of you have done this. It's like, where do we put our extended family? We have all these people, but someone so has to be close to the front. Where does grandma sit? You know, and what about that uncle who's so irritating and always embarrasses us? You're like, do we put him in the back? No, he's got to sit close to the front, right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So seating arrangements here in this text, James is also referring to the fact that, you know, when somebody comes into this room and this meeting, whatever the meeting is, is where will you have them sit? And how you think about them will be revealed in what you offer them. And so here's what's interesting. James is rebuking them for prejudice and favoritism. And yet these are a people who have experienced prejudice, discrimination, and favoritism that has not been in their favor. Because he's writing to a people group that were Jewish believers that were spread throughout the Mediterranean region, and these were a people that were spread out through the region because they were being persecuted. So this was the early church, a young church that was experiencing this discrimination by how they looked, by the clothes that they wear, by the the status that they had in society, by the beliefs that they had as now followers of Jesus. And so they had experienced this persecution, and now they in turn are kind of doing a similar thing, and James is calling them out on it. And I've seen in life oftentimes where people will experience something that's really painful and hard and hurtful in some of these areas, and then they turn around and they do the very same thing to other people. And sometimes we're guilty of that. And so James is calling them out on that and saying, this is not how you live. When you are a follower of Jesus, when you you are a Christ follower and you're a person who lives by faith, you treat people as equals. You view them differently. You see them in the image of God. And you honor the vulnerable and the poor. So let's keep reading in James Chapter 2, verse 5 to 7. He says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom you belong? He's talking about Jesus, His brother, the Savior. And so... James is picking up on the theme that he referenced earlier in in James chapter 1 that we looked at in earlier weeks where it said, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. So how are we to think about these texts? He's talking about the rich and the poor and the different postures and positions. Or in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, Where Peter says it this way, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. So it's speaking about humility. Both that God humbles the proud, but also that we are called to humble ourselves. And that's part of what James is getting at as he talks about how we view other people, that we humble ourselves by viewing them differently. We don't make these immediate judgments on them just because they're rich or just because they're poor. 
but we see them differently. And again, it's ironic that they're showing favoritism to the rich in that culture when these are the same people, as James says, that are hauling them into court and taking them, you know, giving them the kind of persecution that they're facing, that they're speaking ill of the name of Jesus. And so he's challenging them. Why is it that you're giving this special honor to these kind of people and see them differently? So the favoritism that James is speaking about would be a common cultural practice in that day. Not so dissimilar to common cultural practices for us today. We view people differently, don't we? By what they're wearing, by the job that they have, by the home that they have, the vehicles that they have, whatever the case may be. When we see people on the street, we make assumptions about them. So it doesn't matter in which direction, whether it's the rich or the poor, but he's saying, you know, we need to view people differently. Not try to earn the favor of the wealthy as they were trying to do, but he's saying a very countercultural response. That when people come into your setting, that you would give them a seat of honor regardless of what they look like. Now, some of you, as I said, you know, you sit in the usual spots and you have been here many times and your seat is really comfortable. And so you like your seat, but did you give up your seat or did you welcome others to sit beside you today? I see those shaking heads. And what kind of people would you have sit beside you? Would we be one who would give up our seat and say, you know, come and sit beside me? Are we quick to do that or quick to kind of protect our turf? Do we make quick and subtle judgments about, about people? And yet James is saying that people need to be seen with equal value, equal worth in the eyes of God. In the day that James was writing into, these people would not have experienced or known really a middle class. It really wasn't the middle class. It was a very huge divide, and most people were poor. There might have been about 8% of people that were, would have been considered wealthy, and maybe another couple percent that were kind of moving their way towards that. But probably about 90% of the people would have been in a category that we would call poor. And that, so they were an interesting kind of audience that he was speaking to, and so he's, he's speaking to that kind of context. And just like Jesus does in Matthew, James, his brother, and it's almost like James is referencing his brother here, like Jesus teaches in Matthew. He, he gives this blessing to the poor and a warning to those who are rich. So James is kind of paralleling some of Jesus' teaching. Jesus does that in Matthew 5, Matthew 25, and other places. And it's this strong reminder that Jesus himself, the very evidence and manifestation of God's glory, chose so often to identify with the lowly and the poor and the vulnerable, the outcasts. And James continues on this theme as he picked up even in chapter 1 of saying what true religion is, it's looking after orphans and widows. And so again, similar theme that he is talking about. And then he says this interesting thing about these people that they will have you know, this, this bigger faith or in some ways, you know, he says that uh, they, they will be rich in faith. These poor in the eyes of the world. So what's that all about? It's not that their poverty in and of themselves, in and of itself, is what is commended or makes them righteous. But it's that poverty tends to allow for the seeds of strong faith to take root because there isn't this dependence on our own self-security and our own wealth and our own position and our own ability to just take care of ourselves. And so it seems like the seeds of faith can take deeper root in places where there is poverty because people learn an unbelievable dependence on God that maybe 
some of us in the wealthier parts of the world don't experience in the same way. And I've shared before that I've often had people in other parts of the world in developing countries who will say that they pray for us as pastors and as the church in in the West because we have so many obstacles to God that we don't often even see, and it's our self-security and our affluence. So they're called to be rich in faith, regardless of their status, whether rich or poor. Let's keep reading James chapter 2, verses 8 to 13, to the end of this section. He goes on, he says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles is just one point on just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So here James is referring back to this royal law. He's referring back to the Scriptures, and he's saying that, you know what, all of Scripture, all of what you people would have known as Scripture, this, this Hebrew text, okay, the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets, which is, would have been the Scripture that they had in that day, he's saying even all of that Scripture points to the same royal law that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it's also similar again to what Jesus taught in Matthew 22, And you wonder, is James the brother here kind of referencing and reflecting what Jesus said about this royal law? So when Jesus was asked about which is the greatest commandment, he said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And he's referencing Leviticus 19, verse 18. Jesus is. So in a similar way, James is also doing that and saying Leviticus uh, 1918, here, love your neighbor as yourself. This royal law captures the spirit of the entire Old Testament. And he's arguing that showing favoritism is sin and it breaks the overall law of the Old Testament when you don't love your neighbor as yourself. And also that true expression of faith is an act of mercy, just as Jesus also taught. That God is merciful and therefore people should show mercy to each other as an expression of true faith. And evidence that one is alive in Christ. And so James ends this section, at least this part of the the text, with this line, mercy triumphs over judgment. And if you look back in that section that we just read where he's talking about the the fact that if if you don't keep even one part of the law, it's like you've broken all of it. So you might be really good in this area and haven't done this sin, but if you've done this sin or broken in this area, then you are actually guilty of all of it. Which is pointing to our need for grace and to understand the gospel of grace that is found in Jesus Christ, that we are made whole, that we are forgiven of our sins, and that we have reconciliation with the Heavenly Father because of what Jesus has done. And so it's an expression of this grace that is there for us. And you know, in in so many ways, James paints a picture of a church under the influence of the culture that is surrounding it. Not so dissimilar to us as a church today. And the same struggles that we have is how do we live differently? How do we live counterculturally? And this is where James is just saying one of the evidences of that faith is not showing favoritism, not showing discrimination, not showing prejudice, but seeing people in the eyes of God. One uh, commentator 
uh, David Nystrom, he says this, and I quote him. He says, in his famous 1978 commencement address at Harvard University, Alexander Solnechkin charged that the West, by eliminating God and therefore the sense of accountability and purpose that follows from that belief, had chosen materialism, godlessness, and shallow attempts at freedom and happiness. Any attempt to return to greatness, he said, must begin with the recognition that human life and human nature are at their core spiritual, and therefore human beings have a responsibility to God and to others. And so this truth that if we actually understand people to be spiritual beings, we view them differently. And we don't go down this road of kind of reductionism that we put value on people according to what they have, but rather that they have inherent character of God and the identity of God, the fingerprint of God, because they are created by Him. So we sometimes do this reductionism from from being, of, of who we are as a being, to the doing or the owning even, what it is that we acquire, what we have that gives us worth and purpose. And yet Scripture calls us to have our identity in Christ. So I want to just look at a couple of those words that I started at the beginning again and just remind us of the definition of these first two. First of all, prejudice. A preformed opinion, usually an unfavorable one, based on insufficient knowledge, irrational feelings, or inaccurate stereotypes. Or discrimination. To unfair treatment of one person or group, usually because of prejudice about race, ethnicity, age, religion, or gender. So how do we do these things? I mean, for for some, uh, it can feel obvious. For me, I can see this in my own heart in lots of different ways. Even as I was preparing this week for this message, just different incidences where it's like God is just, just revealing some things to me of where some of this prejudice and discrimination is in my own life. So it happens in ways that are subtle and also in ways that are not so subtle. Let me just give you two examples of ways that might not be as obvious to us, but that I think give an expression of this. One of them is a little bit easier one or a lighter one. It's called attribution theory. And attribution theory is just simply that we attempt to understand or explain people's behavior, the behavior of other people, by assigning cause or motive to it, right? And with attribution theory, what we often do is we are very generous with ourselves, but very not generous with other people, right? Now, I I do this with my wife when we paint, and I'm really generous with my own painting, but not generous with her painting, but that's a little bit different story. Uh, Attribution theory would be more like, okay, so if you have, uh, if somebody is late, and, and you're frustrated with them because they're often late, and you attribute it to their character, and you say, well, that's a character flaw in them because they're always late. But if you're late, well, it's because of the circumstances. It's because the traffic was bad or something else was going on. But it's not a character thing. It's just a circumstance thing. You understand? Or, or if somebody gets angry, if anger is present and somebody else is angry, you kind of go, that's just an angry person, you know, and it's a character flaw, you know, and you kind of attribute it to that. But if you get angry, again, it's a circumstance. Oh, no, no, well, this person did this. I mean, that's justifiable, right? So attribution theory, in, in a sense, is one way that we discriminate or that we have prejudice or that we have subtle judgments of other people. Let me give you another one that is really powerful and has impacted me. And it's the danger of a single story. And some of you have maybe seen this, uh, this talk. It's, it's a TED talk that was done a number of years ago, about 10 years ago now. And uh, you can find it online if you, again, use the 
the electronic bulletin and in the study notes, the link to this talk is there. It's about 20 minutes long and I would really encourage you to listen to it. But here is a talk that was given by this woman. Her name is Chimamanda Adichie and she's from Nigeria. Let me just tell you a little bit of her story and her talk was on the danger of a single story, which is a kind of prejudice or discrimination. So Chimamanda was born in Nigeria. She was always a reader and then she became a writer. She loved to write. She loved books. But most of the books that she had access to as a young child were written from either authors in Britain or America. So then when she started to write her own stories, she found that all of her characters were white and they had blue eyes and they played in the snow and they talked a lot about the weather, which was kind of interesting. Wasn't it lovely that the sun had come out? And this is what she read. And she wrote about it as she only had access to these foreign books and She had never been outside of Nigeria. Because you see, we're all impressionable and shaped by what we read. But later she discovered African books with African characters. And she loved the American and British books that she read, but the African books she read saved her from the danger of a single story. So let me explain. You see, Chimamanda comes from a middle-class Nigerian family. Her father was a professor and her mother was an administrator. And they had live-in domestic help, as was the practice and very common at that time and in that country where they would have people from outlying areas who would come and live in their house and they would be the help, the domestic help in their home from outlying villages. So when she was eight years old and she was just a little girl, they had a, a young boy, a houseboy named Fide, who came and worked in their house and he was from an outlying village. And her mother only told her that he was very poor and so she, they as a family gave Fide uh, food and he would take it back to his family and she felt pity for him. But then one day she went to visit Fide's village and she saw that his family made beautiful crafts and they played and they had much joy and they loved each other. And she had a very different view of Fide and what she witnessed confronted her prejudice because you see she could only see that he was poor and that was her single story of him. Years later, Chimamanda went to study in America. And here, she had a white American roommate who was surprised that she could actually speak English, even though it's the official language of Nigeria. And her white American roommate asked her what her tribal music was. And she was disappointed when told that it was actually Mariah Carey. (laughs) She assumed that Chimamanda couldn't use a stove. And what struck her was that her roommate had a default position towards her as an African, had prejudice and stereotypes of Africa, and had a patronizing, well-meaning kind of pity towards her. Her roommate had a single story of Africa, of catastrophe, with no possibility of ever having any commonality to an American. And one prejudice that Chimamande faced regularly was the fact that Africa is often referred to as a single country with one story, when it is a continent of many countries with many, many stories. Her roommate had a single story of Africa, just as Chimamande admittedly also had a single story of Fide, her houseboy. She also experienced her own prejudice when she went to Mexico and had the mirror held up to her about her view of Mexicans that she had only gathered through the media. And she had bought into the single story of them as well. So you see, a single story is developed when you show a people group as one thing and only one thing. And over and over again, and that is what they become. You flatten their experience. You see, when we only focus on the negative stories, it it, it flattens their experience and, and it causes us to overlook the many stories that actually make up 
someone's life. And we make stereotypes of people. And Chimamande says, the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. And they make one story become the only story. And it robs people of dignity. So we need to explore the many stories that make up people's lives. Because you see, stories are powerful. And we need to allow the diversity of stories of all people fill our lives. And this is one of the ways that we follow the teaching of James of living without prejudice that he's speaking about in our text today is that we need to reject the single story. But a month ago, uh, our council, we, we had a council retreat with our council leaders and also a number of our staff and some other people came on Friday night as well. And although we didn't describe it in this way, in light of what I just shared, I would say that our council retreat was actually about confronting the single story of First Nations people. We wanted to understand more components of the story. And so on Friday night, Dallas Pelley and Lloyd Leckman, they led us through the blanket exercise, which I know some of you have done. It's a powerful exercise where you immerse yourself into the story of residential schools, of reserves, of countless other obstacles and tragedies that have caused First Nation people to have so, so many challenges and so much pain. But then on Saturday, we also heard many other stories. Dallas shared more of his stories. And his mom, Donna, and his aunt, Judy, they told many stories, not a single story. They told stories of pain and hurt and persecution, yes, but they also told stories of hope and success and beauty. So here's the thing. I think for so many of us, myself included, we don't know this prejudice or this discrimination personally very well. I know in my life I've hardly ever experienced it. And for many of us it's only theory and it's hard to relate to. But for others here today, people have experienced this in so many different expressions over so many different years that it starts to chip away at identity and worth and how we view ourselves and how we view God and even our faith. But to be the church, we need to be a church that sees people as equals, equal value, equal worth. And the evidence of that is seen in who we invite into our homes, who we welcome at our tables, who we invite to sit with us, who we invite to lead with us, how we ask questions of people to understand them more deeply than the things that we just simply project on them. Do we actually care to learn from them and to understand the many stories that are there as part of their lives? And so one way that we live this royal law that James points out about loving our neighbor as ourselves is that we refuse to reduce people to a single story. But we seek to understand and to dig deeper into the many stories that shape people's lives. So Heavenly Father, we thank You for the beauty and the power and the practicality of James and these texts that challenge us on a really practical level. And God, right now we just maybe are feeling the conviction by Your Holy Spirit that we are some who sometimes make stereotypes of people or view people through prejudice or discrimination. And we just confess that to You. And Lord, we, we confess that oftentimes we do it in very overt ways and sometimes we do it in really subtle ways. But what's really important is to know what's in our heart about these things. And so Lord, would You forgive us 
And God, I pray that you would help us to live as, as people who love people. Help us to understand your incredible story of the gospel so that we can live out of that and express that to other people. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to take time to listen to people's stories, the many stories that make up their lives, not just the one that we project onto them. And so, Father, I pray that you would help forgive us, that you would forgive us from our prejudice, and that you would help us to live in a new way, that we would live with freedom and with unity and with a love that expresses the mercy of God that we have received. And so, Lord, we lay these things before you. We confess them in front of you. And we thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.